Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, coming to you from New York City. I'm Adam Feuerstein, isolating in lovely Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, socially distancing in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, May 7th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, our colleague Sharon Begley joins us to explain what COVID-19 may have in store for the U.S. this summer and beyond. The scenarios based on modeling are grim. Next, we'll discuss Gilead Sciences and the crucial moment in the spotlight that the pandemic is creating for the company. Finally, San Francisco cardiologist and frequent podcast guest Ethan Weiss is in New York City right now working at a hospital to care for patients with COVID-19. Ethan joins us for a conversation about that experience. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the Chief Revenue Officer of STAT. The COVID-19 pandemic has made it more important than ever to improve the lives of communities impacted by poverty. Life Science Cares is a collective effort of the life sciences industry dedicated to doing just that. I'm here with Sarah McDonald, the organization's executive director, to discuss how the life sciences community can help during this crucial time. Sarah, while the immediate needs of medical solutions are obvious in times of health crises, how can the life sciences community support the most vulnerable populations in local communities who need help? The COVID-19 crisis is impacting people's lives in truly unprecedented ways, making the continued generosity of both companies like Takeda, as well as individuals, even more necessary. Life Science Cares needs support to meet the needs of our partners during this crisis by donating to their specific wish lists or to our COVID-19 relief fund. Visit lifesciencecares.org to learn more about the organization and the community organizations who need support during this time. First up, we're going to talk about the biggest question on everyone's minds. What can we expect from the coming months in America? It's a question without easy answers, and many of the projections about how the pandemic will unfold are incredibly grim in terms of the death toll, new cases, and disruption to normal life. Already, as of the time we recorded this podcast on Thursday morning, COVID-19 had killed more than 73,000 people in the U.S., Joining us to talk about all this is our stat colleague, Sharon Begley, who has been covering the scenarios that could define the next few years. Sharon, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, everyone. So, Sharon, let's start with this week's news about several incredibly depressing projections from modelers. Researchers at Columbia University are projecting between 1,800 and 2,500 deaths in the U.S. per day by June 1st. Johns Hopkins researchers project a median of 2,500 daily deaths by June 1st, and the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation is now projecting 134,000 deaths in the U.S. by the start of August. Sharon, these numbers are all quite a bit worse than some people have been expecting as recently as a few weeks ago. So Sharon, what do you make of these predictions? Well, the predictions are worse because what had been baked into the earlier ones was a lot of social distancing and continued social distancing. But instead, what we've seen, of course, is more than half the states, I think, at last count, are relaxing the restrictions that they had put in place um, in April and in some cases even in March and are doing so despite not having met the criteria that public health experts say they need to in order to safely reopen. And that has to do with 
among other things, seeing a constantly decreasing rate of cases, lower number of people testing positive. There are a number of them. But, you know, from north to south, states are saying, no, we're going to reopen anyway. And that's why the models are saying, well, then you know what? Things are going to be worse. So let's zoom in on how these models work. Sharon, you've done some reporting specifically on the methodology used by the University of Washington. What's unusual about that? And and why are some epidemiologists skeptical? Well, the first reason epidemiologists are skeptical is that that model, the IHME model, has jumped around so much. A few months ago, it was projecting more than 200,000 deaths, and it always goes out just to early August, so we'll keep that date. And then it pulled back to something like 60,000, which they explained reflected effective social distancing. And then, as you said, just a few days ago, it was saying, nope, it looks like it's going to be nearly 200,000 again by August 1st. So the modelers say that their jumping around projections reflects reality on the ground. Again, that social distancing initially seemed to be more effective, and then, you know, it's being relaxed. So what can you expect? But in fact, It's not a model in the sense that other modelers understand the term. Instead, what the IHME people do is look at the growth in cases um, starting in February or March, um, at least for the United States. And then they assume that the downward slope, so if you imagine sort of a hill, they say it's going to be a symmetric hill, that however quickly it went up, it will go down equally quickly. So that's not a model. A model means that you determine, you calculate how many people are susceptible, how many people are going to get infected, how many people are going to die, et cetera. So IHME is taking a unusual approach, shall we say, and that's why it's caught you know, the attention of other modelers and has come in for so much criticism. So let's now shift gears a little bit to talk about the overall shape of the pandemic. Sharon, you recently did a piece on an analysis led by a researcher at the University of Minnesota that outlined three possible scenarios for the next few years. Outline those scenarios for us in broad strokes. Sure. So it's probably easier to see visually. um, So I hope people can go to the stat story that went into the three scenarios. But basically, the first one shows that we have the current outbreak, of course, and then there is a significant downturn in the summer. Um, And that reflects the hope, and by some people, an expectation that transmission will fall once the northern uh, hemisphere enters the summer months. Um, But that is followed by smaller outbreaks starting in the fall and through next winter, and probably through the end of 2022. And 2022 is chosen because that's probably the earliest that an effective and widely available vaccine would come around. So that's probably the best we can hope for, these researchers say. The second scenario is one that's drawn from history. And there, um, they hark back to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, which started with a pretty bad outbreak. But then about six months later, there was a just horrendous second outbreak, just much worse than the first. It's not really clear what in terms of either biology or social practices explain that. And the researchers don't say how that might also characterize a second wave of COVID-19. They just throw it out there saying, you know, it happened once, so we have to be aware that it might happen again. In this scenario, because so many people are infected by this enormous second outbreak, probably later this year, a fair amount of immunity in the population takes hold. And as we keep hearing, 
If people are infected once, there's a good chance, not a perfect chance, but a good chance that they will be immune to subsequent infection. And so the country, at least, will start approaching what's called herd immunity, which means any subsequent waves are much less likely to infect a lot of people because more people will simply be immune. So let me go on to the third and final scenario. This one shows fairly significant outbreaks comparable to what the United States is experiencing now multiple times throughout the year. It just keeps coming back and back and back and back. Not in every place. This reflects that, you know, there might be a really serious outbreak on the East Coast for a number of months. And then that dies down as probably, you know, government officials impose new restrictions. And then in a place where those restrictions had been eased off, maybe in the South or the West or the Midwest, they have an outbreak. So this scenario envisions just rolling waves of pretty serious outbreaks as far as the eye can see, again, at least until there's an effective vaccine. So Sharon, what are the factors that could influence which of these future scenarios actually happens or gets realized? The scientists say that Although human decisions, both personal and sort of governmental, official, have a lot to do with it. As I said, whether uh, an outbreak is contained absolutely reflects social distancing practices, shutdowns, stay at home, all the things that we've been experiencing. But as the biologist said, the virus has a lot to say about this as well. In other words, um, it's the biology of the virus that will determine whether it really will abate over the summer. And th that's unknown. A lot of researchers hope that there will be some abatement, that it will become somewhat less transmissible, but not completely untransmissible. But exactly how much of a break we'll get because of heat and humidity is unknown, remains to be seen. Sharon, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, everyone. For weeks, the conversation around Gilead Sciences' remdesivir focused on whether the drug could treat COVID-19. Now that we've seen data showing that remdesivir can speed up patients' recovery from the disease, the world has an equally pressing question. How much is Gilead going to charge for it? So Damien, you and Stats, Nick Florco, had a story this week looking at that question in the context of Gilead's history and its relationship with activists and lawmakers. What do we know so far about the price of remdesivir? So right now we have nothing concrete. Gilead has committed to donating its entire current supply of the drug, which is expected to cover about 200,000 patients. But, you know, as we know from the COVID-19 case numbers around the world and, and in this country, many more than 200,000 people are going to want remdesivir. So the latest line from the company, as recently as this week, is that it's too early or it's premature to comment on pricing. But they have said over and over, one, that they don't want access to be a problem. They want to make sure that everyone who needs the drug can get it, but also that they intend to create, quote, a sustainable system for producing it, which means they will be charging something or else the cost of manufacturing it would be unsustainable. So this is not the first time that Gilead has invented an antiviral treatment that the world desperately wants. How does the company's history factor into the remdesivir situation? Right. So if Gilead is, is known around the world for anything, it's for creating incredibly powerful medicines for deadly viruses and then making a lot of people angry with how much they cost. So that dates back to the 2000s um, when Gilead introduced a series of therapies for HIV that, you know, and, and this line is a cliche, but it's true, helped transform that virus from a death sentence into a chronic disease. But of course, they insisted on charging thousands of dollars a year for them, which obviously didn't 
please people and, and really gave light to a new generation of activism among you know, sort of the descendants of the ACT UP movement from the 1980s uh, in protesting Gilead for what they perceived as profiteering um, over HIV. And then most recently, Gilead developed what is essentially a cure for hepatitis C, but of course priced it at $84,000 for a course of therapy, famously $1,000 for a pill. And, you know, that is credited with kind of seeding the modern drug pricing fervor that we see in Washington and around the country. That The headline of a $1,000 pill really galvanized a lot of people. So, you know, you can imagine that entire history has not endeared Gilead to the HIV activist community, many public health advocates, and, and people who advocate for controls on drug pricing. And so that set up this really fascinating dynamic in the present, where, you know, as I mentioned, Gilead is saying what you would call all the right things about remdesivir. We're going to donate a lot of the drug, we're going to make sure access isn't a problem, etc. But because of that prologue that I just mentioned, a lot of people just aren't buying it. They think that you know, Gilead has said things like this before about other drugs and then gone on to charge what they perceive to be exorbitant prices for them. And they don't see why remdesivir would be different. So, Damien, to that point, Gilead's market value has increased by almost $20 billion since the start of the year, you know, which suggests that Wall Street thinks remdesivir is going to be lucrative. Yet we hear Gilead at least suggest otherwise. So how do we reconcile those two things? So that's the other side of the coin that makes the remdesivir story, I think, so interesting to me. Gilead is not a charity. It's not a non-governmental organization. It's a business. It's a publicly traded entity. So, you know, like I said, Gilead has said over and over that it wants to do right by the world and ensure access. But it's also said that it will spend up to a billion dollars developing remdesivir this year alone. And so, you know, to investors who are focused on the profits and losses and, you know, their shareholders in the company... That means that Gilead better find a way to at least recoup that investment by charging some sort of premium for remdesivir, meaning not selling it at the cost it takes to make it because that would run a net loss. And so that really came into relief last week. It just so happened that the day after the federal government released data showing remdesivir's effects, Gilead had its quarterly earnings call. And so analysts, at least three of them, just kind of asked permutations of the same question, which is, how much money are you going to make on this? And one in particular I thought was fairly poignant. Jeff Porges, who's an analyst at SVB Learink and has covered this industry for quite a long time and is sort of an eminence in the sell-side analyst community, he made this point. For years, investors have been able to count on Gilead making huge profits on HIV, as I mentioned, hepatitis C, and then similarly on, on Tamiflu, uh, which is an influenza treatment. Why should coronavirus be different? Why wouldn't we expect Gilead to replicate its success treating these viruses, as I mentioned, and lining the pockets of investors. And, you know, the CEO, Daniel O'Day, didn't really address that head on. And he said, again, that it's all premature. But I thought that was a really interesting framing because in Wall Street terms, a pandemic is just another disease to treat. And Gilead is a company that invents drugs to treat diseases um, and makes money for doing so. So I think that really laid out the terms that Gilead is facing, which is that when they announce a price, they will either anger Washington or Wall Street, and honestly, most likely both. So Damien, what are you going to be watching for next in this saga? So like I said, I do think the likely scenario is that everyone is going to be mad. As for when Gilead will announce that price, most people expect that the donated supply of remdesivir will elapse pretty quickly, as early as this month, if not the next. So we should hear news on that front fairly soon. What I think is interesting is how, you know, the way we're thinking about this in, in the linear sense of they're going to announce a price and people are going to be mad or happy or whatever, that might be wrong. There's 
a chance that this goes in a sort of third direction. So some of the activists I talk to look at this as an opportunity to reshape how the world pays for its medicines. You might think that drug pricing advocates don't want Gilead to make a dime on remdesivir, and some of them clearly do. But I heard from people who, and this caught my interest, they said they want Gilead to get a substantial financial reward for inventing the drug. They want to incentivize companies to invent drugs like this because this will not be the last pandemic that we face in our lifetimes. But they want that reward to be in exchange for guaranteeing universal access, meaning anyone in the world who needs remdesivir can get it easily. So they're proposing basically some sort of new system by which the world, in you know, however it might choose to organize itself, gives Gilead perhaps a lump sum or a subscription revenue or something that they can count on that will be monetary and will reward them, but will cut off the very second the company doesn't do right by providing it. And if something like that were to come to pass, it might be replicable. And so issues like, you know, what's arisen with Gilead and HIV and hepatitis C and these expensive drugs, maybe you could replicate a system like this by which companies could get a financial reward. But some of the issues around access we see with co-pays and insurance coverage and out-of-pocket costs and all that stuff might dissipate. So there is a sense of optimism, I think, among longtime watchers of Gilead and watchers of drug pricing that remdesivir might actually break the mold if everybody behaves correctly. Ethan Weiss is a cardiologist who practices at the University of California, San Francisco. He's widely followed on Twitter, and he's also a repeat guest of this podcast. Today, Ethan is once again our guest because at the end of April, he was among a group of medical personnel who left their homes in the Bay Area and boarded a pretty empty plane en route to New York City. Once there, Ethan and his group were put to work treating patients with COVID-19. Ethan is joining us from his New York City hotel room after today's shift at the hospital. Ethan, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks, everyone. So, Ethan, you wrote an essay for the Timmerman Report in which you tried to explain your reasons for flying to New York to treat COVID-19 patients. And you wrote there that you weren't entirely sure about your motives, but you said you were hearing, quote, a dog whistle and it was driving you mad. Can you explain what you meant by that? Basically, the Bay Area had had its first patients in early February. I think the the first patient showed up at, at UCSF at my hospital on February 4th. Uh, and it was, you know, very quiet. It was just one or two patients. But I think they were preparing quietly behind the scenes for what they expected would eventually be a big outbreak locally. And in the beginning of March, things started to heat up. And then it was on March 16th that the nine or maybe it was initially just six uh, Bay Area counties uh, went into what you know is sort of called a lockdown. I had been uh, called the day before by a colleague of mine who was told by their doctor that I, they shouldn't go to the hospital because they were at high risk for developing a bad case of of coronavirus. So the person asked me if I would cover, and so I, I said I would, and uh, and then I went to the hospital that week and fully expected that we would be overrun with patients, and and you know that the surge never came. And I think from that moment that we realized the surge wasn't going to come and we were seeing what was happening here in New York and a few other places around the world, I felt activated and felt like, gosh, I need to, to do something. So Ethan, you're an academic cardiologist. So I, I assume that you're treating severely ill patients with COVID-19 in an ICU setting is not the type of medicine that you practice every day. So how or who helped you prepare for this type of work? So, you know, talking to my you know, to the people I'm working with here, everybody had to learn something. I had taken care of critically ill patients, although not a lot recently. Also keep in mind that a lot of the doctors here taking care of patients are being called to do so. And it has absolutely nothing to do with anything they do. And in fact, some of them are radiologists or dermatologists or 
uh, other people who have very little or no patient care contact and no critical care experience. So I sort of came to it with a confidence that I felt like I was able to take care of sick people and I had talked to enough people around that I got the sense that there wasn't really a lot of magic to it and that I could probably learn what I needed to learn relatively quickly. I did a lot of reading and did talk to a lot of people, but, um, but no one else, I didn't like have to go through some, you know, course or anything. Although I did have to learn how to use the hospital's EHR. Ethan, what was the first day at the hospital like for you? Describe that for us. I mean, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. I do the same thing pretty much every day. The very first day they paired me with another doctor as a buddy to kind of, I guess, make sure that I wasn't going to do anything horrible that first day. And we met in the ICU at, you know, 645. And there was a lot of activity. Everybody's in like loads and loads of PPE covered head to toe. People are putting on extra PPE. And he looked at me and he said, you know, this is not like normal. And I said, Okay. And of course, I had no idea what normal was because it was my first time walking in there. Well, it turns out I had nine patients on my service at that time when I walked in the unit at 645, seven of them were intubated, two of them were not. By the time we finished my little orientation at like 715, the other two had been intubated. So I happened to walk into two people who were having to get intubated. So it was very exciting and uh, and really scary that first moment. So can you tell us more about the patients under your care, what, you know, the age ranges or, or the, you know, how healthy or how sick they are in general? So I've done two weeks. Last week was a uh, converted step-down unit at this hospital that uh, they had turned into a COVID ICU. They basically turned anything they could into a COVID ICU. And that's true across all the hospitals in New York. And uh, these patients, they were all chronic patients with the exception of one. I think there's one younger guy who had been admitted with within the last couple of days, maybe like two or three days before I got there. But otherwise they'd been there for an average of 15 to up to 35 or 40 days. So they had the sort of chronic manifestations of long-term uh, COVID ARDS or acute respiratory dis- distress syndrome. And so they were dealing with the problems that you deal with at that stage of the disease, which is how do you get people off the ventilator and reduced off their sedation? And I would say the range, you know, most of them were older, but I did have two patients in their 40s, early 40s, actually, much younger than I am, and um, a couple others in their, you know, early to mid 50s. So you've been writing about your experience and sharing on Twitter. On day four of your time in New York, you described COVID-19 as horrific. And you said, quote, it's not the fucking flu, end quote. What are you seeing with your patients that so many people are unfortunately not understanding about this virus? Yeah. So, I mean, I was frustrated because I had been reading some stuff on Twitter and talking to different people, family members and friends and stuff. And I think the message out there is that this is, you know, just the flu. And this is so clearly not just the flu. It looks nothing like anything any of us have ever seen. And it's on a scale no one's ever seen before. And I think that combination sort of triggered me to want to kind of remind people how bad it is. That in combination with the fact that no one is actually being able to come in and see it. And so even, you know, as a physician, having taken care of many critically ill patients across you know, my 25 plus year career, I wasn't prepared for what I, I saw and had no idea what it was going to look like. And so I think part of the problem is this disconnect because no families are in the hospital. Hospitals are being very tight lipped. There's no film crews. There's no one in there kind of seeing how bad this actually is. And then you get into like the really existential part of it, which is like the loneliness and, and then like the dreadful way of the degrading kind of horrible existence that these poor people have lying in a bed for 35 days, you know, often with just terrible things going on to their bodies and locked in this like glass cage by themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a really 
bleak, grim experience. Ethan, do you think that response to the coronavirus pandemic would be different if this suffering, this dying um, that you're that you're describing were more visible? You know, it strikes me that in this country right now, we're essentially suffering through like a 9-11 equivalent in terms of the number of people dying almost every day. You know, yet it's kind of closed off. There are no, there's no pile of rubble. There's no public funerals. Uh, you know, everything is kind of sequestered. So do you think that makes the tragedy and consequences easier to ignore? I do. I think it's way too easy to, to ignore. Like the level of death, especially a place like here in New York. I mean, we've all seen the pictures of the refrigerated trucks. and But I do think that the fact that it's so invisible and people aren't seeing it and aren't seeing the scope of it uh, is making an impact. I also think like some, I saw something the other day on Twitter about an analysis of how likely you are to have known somebody who died, depending on where you live. In San Francisco, the city, the proper, I think there have been 31 people to die since February 4th. And, you know, it's a city of 750,000 people. So your chance of knowing one of those people who died is slim. Here in New York, everybody knows somebody who died. In fact, a lot of people know multiple people who died. And like the devastation of families and like generations of people infecting each other. And so I do think that makes a big impact. In New York, there's clearly, it's a very different level of sensibility about the the disease and the pandemic than there is in San Francisco. So finally, Ethan, you went to New York, obviously, to assist the physicians, the nurses, and the other healthcare workers who live there and who have been dealing with this from the beginning of the outbreak in New York. What can you tell us about them and, and what they're going through? I'm like blown away by these people. I don't know how they keep doing this. They've been going like this for, you know, six weeks and it's exhausting. And they don't complain. They don't seem to be getting tired and they all seem to like be coping in a psychological way. Now, we all heard the story about the emergency room doctor. I don't know what hospital. It was somewhere here in Manhattan. Uh, so I, obviously it's, it is having a psychological impact on people, but I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing a tremendous resilience. And at least now at this point, and people are still all like really pulling together and there for each other, they're incredibly grateful for me to be here, not because I'm doing anything magical. I'm just giving them a chance to rest. And so they thank me every day. And that, that feels really good. Ethan, thank you for going to New York to care for these patients. And thank you for your time. Thank you, guys. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what other element of the pandemic we should be covering. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud@statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.